0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons. I want to talk to you about provocation. The term provocation means to call forth a feeling or action, to stir up purposefully, to provide the needed stimulus for, and also means to incite to anger or to arouse a feeling in another. The Bible speaks about provocation and in many respects it uses the term provocation in a very negative way. It uses it in reference to how God's people can provoke the wrath and anger of God in their lives. I want to start in Hebrews chapter 3 and give you a little bit of context here of a provocation that I want us to look into in the book of Numbers. There's some reference to it made here in the third chapter of Hebrews that I think is helpful. Let me start in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. That's talking to you. It's addressing God's people. Consider Jesus Christ is what it says. Who was faithful to Him that appointed Him, as also Moses was faithful in all His house. It's drawing a parallel there between the faithfulness of Christ and the faithfulness of Moses. Now we know that Christ's faithfulness was in all things and perfect in a way that Moses' faithfulness was not. Moses was a fallen man. He did things that caused him to have to be punished in this life. He smote the rock twice and didn't get to enter the promised land as a result. So he was not a perfect man. And yet his service does depict in some ways is a type or a shadow of what Jesus Christ came to do in perfection. Verse 3, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. That is making a clear distinction between Moses and Christ, pointing out that Christ is the Creator of the world. He is God of God, and Moses was not. Moses was created (laughs) Uh, a created being and Jesus Christ was not he is the eternal God so there's a distinction there and all the glory goes to the greater honor goes to the builder of the house which is God for every house is builded by some man but he that built all things is God so so you occasionally you'll hear at times people say well you know the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus was God or Jesus never claimed to be God well this is one of those places where it makes it very clear He's talking about Christ, and he's talking about Him as the builder who gets the credit. And then he says, He that built all things is God. So that's one of those places that points these things out that is often overlooked. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, we said in the first part of this, it said, wherefore, holy brethren, that's talking to God's people here. Okay? We are talking about people who are believers. That holy calling is regeneration. It's talking about people who have been born of the Spirit of God, born-again people. It's addressing us. So we need to be very careful in understanding that and not thinking, well, this is talking to an alien dead center out there trying to get them saved to eternal heaven if they 'll just act right now that 's what a lot of Christian religion teaches today, but that is not what this verse is teaching and it 's one of the problems with getting the uh, doctrine of salvation wrong is that you end up applying lessons that are intended for god 's people for the purpose of improving their walk and their discipleship and their obedience, you end up applying that to a different group of people for the purpose of their eternal salvation, and it's not that at all. So again, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today if ye will hear His voice, that ye is the holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling, right? If ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness." This verse is saying that God's people are capable of provoking God as a result of their own willful disobedience. It is a very dangerous matter, and I've encountered Christians over the years who kind of have the doctrine of what's commonly called sinless perfection. Like you become a Christian, you become born again, and then you don't sin anymore. That is a crazy headspace to get yourself into because what it does is it tells you basically, uh, I believe I'm saved, therefore anything I do is not sin, is really what you're saying. Now, how do you ever... Try to put some conviction on somebody by pointing out something they did that was sinful when they believe that nothing they do can be sin. It's a very dangerous place to be. And the Bible abundantly attests to the fact that God's people do commit sin and they struggle with sin till their dying day. That's what Romans 7 is really about. But there's many, many examples in the Bible. From the patriarchs and Moses and all the way up through King David and the apostles themselves, there's just... Many, many examples that would defeat this idea of sinless perfection in our walk in this life. So we need to be sure. One of the lessons we need to get out of this, if you will hear His voice, that means it's entirely possible that though you have the ears to hear, you might say, I don't want to hear it. Or I'm not going to hear it. Now, have you ever done that with your spouse or with a friend or something? They're going to tell you something. Maybe that something is true. But you just decide, I do it may be true, I just don't want to hear it. Right? We do that commonly in our interactions with other people. and We get some petty grievances built up in our minds, and we get stubborn, and we, so we don't want to be corrected. And that happens just on the uh, horizontal plane as we interact with people. But we treat God the same way. It's entirely possible that we can treat God in the same way. So first thing is to be aware of that. Today, if you will hear His voice... Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Now look, it's not telling you that for no reason. If it was impossible for you to harden your heart against God, I submit that this verse would be unnecessary in the Bible. It's talking to God's people and it's saying, don't harden your heart. That means God's people certainly can harden their hearts. And I bet if you think over your own life, or maybe examine the lives of other people you know, who you are certain are God's children, you can find examples where they went through a season or maybe are currently in a season where they've said, I am going to harden my heart in this matter. I'm just not going to do what I know to be right, what God has told me to be right. And I think an honest assessment of our own lives reveals that this is true. It may be an ugly truth. It may be something we don't want to admit publicly, but it's true nevertheless, and there's a value in embracing the truth. So it says, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now I think much of the Christian world is going to take the days of temptation in the wilderness and say, well, those people, they just weren't, they weren't really eternally saved because they were rebelling against God. Well, this is addressing us, and it's drawing a parallel between us and some of those people. You've got to at least figure that some of these people were God's people. I don't know if every single person that rebelled against God in the Old Testament was. The Bible says they're not all Israel who are of Israel. So there's not a one-to-one relationship between being an Israelite and being born again and being one of God's elect. However, it's apparent to me that if this parallel is drawn and it's applied to God's regenerate people, you must accept that at least some of these people who are rebelling against God, maybe all of them, we're actually regenerate people who are in rebellion against God. Now, that is an unpleasant reality, but it's something we should take to heart. We should approach this with uh, meekness and fear because it's something that we can do. Verse 9, "...when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, they do always error in their heart, and they have not known my ways." So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. I'm going to say they won't enter into eternal salvation. It's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about temporal affairs and the rest that was there for them had they obeyed God. Now God had told them, I'm going to give you this land of Canaan, cross over the Jordan River, and we're going to give you this land full of milk and honey is what it says. Well, they rebelled against that. They didn't believe. They staggered in unbelief, as we are capable of doing. And they never entered the promised land. And as a result, they were punished for 40 years in the wilderness, a great many of them perishing in the wilderness. If you were of a certain age or older, you all all perished in the wilderness, and only their children grew up to see the promised land. I wonder... How much of God's kingdom we miss out on in this world, in our own experience, just because of our refusal to cross the Jordans that are set before us. Now we can look in the Old Testament and say, oh, those Israelites were so silly. They should have trusted God. They had all these miracles. Why were they so silly? Well, this is an ensample to us, and it's intended to point out our own folly and how we do the exact same thing not to give us an opportunity just to point a finger at them and feel as though we're much better than they are because we are not now it speaks of the provocation these people in the wilderness those who disobeyed god in the old testament and did not cross the jordan this is referred to as a provocation of god this was upsetting to God. It angered God. He was full of wrath as a result of this and brought down harsh temporal punishments on the nation of Israel as a result of their behavior. One such example is in Numbers chapter 16. Now this is known as Korah's Rebellion. And I must admit when I read that passage originally and I heard about the provocation, this was actually the event that came to my mind. And as I looked at the text a little more closely, it's It seems to be talking more broadly about the season of rebellion that took place in that 40 years initiated by their refusal to cross the Jordan. But there's a long season of provocation that took place. But it's certain that this incident in uh, chapter 16 of Numbers, Korah's rebellion, can be counted among the provocations that took place at that time. And we're going to look at some examples that we can get out of this. One thing you're going to find is that rebellion against God finds popular support. And it'll find popular support among people who are in the establishment, the princes, rulers, and kings of this world. We're going to find that we have to look to God for guidance rather than looking to the kings and princes of the world and what they think. We're going to find a lesson that we need to honor the service that we've been given. You know, God's people have a tendency to look at, well, this person over there is an elder. And this person over here is a deacon, and I'm just a church member, so I'm not. Why can't I be what they are? Here's a little secret. You may have some elders who are thinking, man, I'm an elder. Why can't I just be someone who just comes to church and gets preached to? That's a thought that crosses an elder's mind from time to time, too, so there's a way that we can begin to envy one another's service and think, well, I need to have this type of service or that type of service to God. But God has a service that He wants you to do, and He's assigned you to it. And we need to be mindful of that. It may change over time. He may require you to do something different in the future than what He's asking you to do now. But we need to be comfortable, content with what we have, right? Godliness with contentment is a great game. Leaders are going to face opposition. That's another thing you find in this story. You're going to find that judgment does come and that it can be harsh and fearful. And then you'll find some things about remembering the things that happen. Uh, learning from your mistakes would be kind of the lesson that I have in mind. So let's dive into this, chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi and Dathan, and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth sons of Reuben, took men. Now here's a whole group of guys. They're going to gather up a group of men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now you might regard this in some respects as akin to a political insurrection where they said, let's get the most revered people, the most popular powerful, enfranchised people in these families. And let's pull 250 of them together. And that's what we're going to approach Moses with and how we're going to oppose him. So this is a movement that exists within and arises from the princes among them, right? This is not some grassroots rebellion, a peasant's revolt where, you know, a a few insignificant people in the uh, tribes of Israel, decide they're going to rise up and oppose these things. This is a a significant thing. So when the the leaders of your society, so to speak, rise up in one accord, 250 of them to oppose your leadership, it tends to be something that people take notice of. And you're going to find this in the ministry of the Lord's New Testament church. You're going to find opposition of this sort going on. Verse 3, Then they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. In other words, it's kind of presented here as like, you know, you're working too hard. you got too much to do. To me, I get a tone out of this It's a little bit like, We want to help you out here. We see that you're so hardworking, you got so much on your plate. Why don't you distribute the load a little bit? And by the way, we're all kings and priests to God in a sense, right? So we can come along and, and help out in these ways. These men are Levites, by the way, so they do have a duty of that sort in the worship service of Israel. But look at Moses' reaction to this. He says, and when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face, and he spake unto Korah and to all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Now Moses' response sort of bypasses any consideration of whether or not this suggestion they have of providing help in distributing the load is practically helpful or pragmatically beneficial. You could get into an argument about, you know, what do they say? Uh, Many hands make for light work, right? That's a common truism. You could say, well, it only makes sense. There's all this work to be done. Why don't we have more people helping out with it? Now that at its face is a very pragmatic argument, and it seems to make some sort of sense. But what does Moses point them back to? These are very prominent men who probably have the ears of a lot of people within Israel. They're probably people that are looked up to in their community and people kind of listen to what they have to say. I think it makes some sense. We can do that. We can get into a realm where we start saying, well, this elder over here or this, person, this exalted person in Christian history said this sort of thing. There's been a lot of good things said. I'm not saying that. But we can get to a place where we start to exalt them beyond their station, right? And Moses makes a very important point right here which is he bypasses the issue of entering into a discussion of whether or not this is a practical solution to the situation they're in. And he just says, we're going to do what God says. How about that? Whether it seems practical to you or not, we're going to do what God says, right? Can we all submit to that? That's kind of the point he's making here. (laughs) Uh, Even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near him. And then he gives this order. This do, take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. Now that's an interesting statement. He's basically saying, you know what, we're going to let God decide this. Now Moses already knows what God has decided about this because Moses has been trying to do what God said to do in this, right? He already knows. He's just reiterating this. He's saying, we're going to ask God about this tomorrow. And by the way, I'm not the one who's taking on too much. You see, it's not taking on too much to do what God told you to do. God's going to enable you to do what He told you to do. You see that? It's not too much. It's those people who are trying to weasel their way in and say they're going to take over some of the load and do the practical thing. They're the ones who've taken on too much. You see, the problem is not that Moses was taking on too much. The problem is that the sons of Korah are thinking that they're actually able to help in this when they're not. You see, if God hasn't called them to do this work, it doesn't matter how the math works out. Well, we'll have 250 more people here to help out. That doesn't matter. It does not matter. I'm going to submit to you that Jesus Christ did the greatest work that was ever done in the history of mankind. The salvation of God's people was the greatest work ever done by anyone, right? Now, could you make a practical argument that says, well, that's a lot of work, Jesus. Maybe some of us ought to take a little bit of that burden off of. Maybe that's just a little too much for you. It's ridiculous when you put it in that context. But here's the thing. This is really what a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ teach as a doctrine. They don't really believe that Jesus Christ could do this massive work and get it all done. And so we're going to distribute it over here and distribute it over there. And if this minister doesn't show up and try to get somebody into heaven, Jesus Christ certainly didn't get it done. Without that minister showing up and giving somebody a chance to go to glory, this person's going to split hell wide open. That is insane. Jesus Christ got the job done, and whether or not one of God's children ever find out a whole lot about that makes no difference because it's a finished work and it's perfect work. Now we have a responsibility as the New Testament Church, to build the church and build the presence of the kingdom of God in the here and now. And we do that by teaching the gospel, helping God's people to come into a knowledge and the rest of knowing what Christ has done for them. That's a great privilege, and we should be spreading the gospel to as many as we can. But ain't me or Brother John or Gary or anybody else, we're not getting anybody to heaven. It's absolutely ridiculous. We're not getting anybody to heaven. And we don't presume to step into that work. What we're doing is we are declaring what Christ has done. And that's the important thing. Moses points out to these people, (laughs) you take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. Oh, you think I'm taking too much on because I'm just doing what God told me to do? No, you're taking too much on because you think what God told me to do is not enough and that you can somehow help out. You're second-guessing what God said to do. You're presuming to be God, are you not? Well, Moses, I think, knows where this is going. And uh, it's it's not a great situation, I'll tell you that much. But let's keep going. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, Ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? And He hath brought thee near to Him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee? And seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord?" And what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Now, what he's making reference to here, if you want to have something to study this week, go back to Numbers chapter 4 and read about the first 10 or 15 verses there. You'll find that it describes what the Kohathites were supposed to do. This is kind of their duties in the service of God as Levites. Now, Korah is a son of... Kohath, right? I think we got that in the first verse of this passage. So you can see that they had been given a job, right? God said, your family should be doing this. And what Moses is saying right here is, look, do you think it's just some small thing to be disregarded that God has told you to do this? That's what you're supposed to do. That's what God said to do. And now you're kind of like, well, we don't need to do that. We need to do what you're doing. Moses is pointing this out to them. They have something to do, and they're not happy with it. They want something else to do, something maybe something with more authority to do. Maybe the role that they were given seems a little bit too servile, and they'd rather have more of an exalted kind of leadership type role. But that's not what God had given them. And this lesson is to be content with the things we have. Look, God has something He wants from you in service to His kingdom. It may be relatively simple. I know it involves things like attending the Lord's house. You should be a it involves being a member of his church. It involves you know maybe preparing meals, maybe it's calling brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe it's reading your Bible, maybe it's trying to encourage one another. it involves spending time together and fellowship, all these sorts of things are out there and You've got some blend of that going on in your life. Maybe there's other things you do. Somebody's got to get here and show up, turn the heater on, and other people, y'all talking about turning on the water this morning, right? You all got the water off when you leave this place. There's all sorts of things you can do, and some of them are you know, relatively simple. Maybe nobody's getting exalted for turning on the water when they come to the church. But it's part of the service in the Lord's house. We've got deacons in our church. They're, I don't have no idea what the electric bill is at Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. Never seen it in my life. I don't care, honestly. The deacons take care of it. They know what it is. They're on top of it. That's part of their service to the Lord. It's part of what they've been given. Other people have something different. Elders have the responsibility and the, the capacity to come up and preach the Word of God to you, and that's part of their service. But we need to kind of be aware of our own swim lane, you know. You've got your own thing that you're supposed to do. And we talk about this in in the business world all the time, people being in swim lanes. You've got different aspects of the company, and whatever's in their swim lane is what they handle. And things that aren't in their swim lane ain't got nothing to do with it, right? So it's important to recognize God's given you a swim lane, and you've got something you need to do. Now, He may at some point change what is in your lane and may require some additional things of you. But if we will stay more focused on doing what God has evidently set in front of us to do, rather than looking three lanes over and trying to figure out whether or not this person's got a better swim lane than we do, and maybe I should be swimming in that lane. Water's a little warmer over here. It's kind of chilly over here. I want to be over there. If we'd stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and think more about what God would have us to do, I think we would benefit from that. And we all have this tendency to kind of do these comparisons as it rises out of the carnal heart, so we need to be aware of it. Verse 12 And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram, Abiram, I should say, and the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Well, that's not good. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us? In the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. Now, look, this is a pretty nasty accusation. And they're kind of blaming Moses for their current circumstance. And he's like, You took us out of the land of milk and honey. Now, wait a minute. That's not entirely right, is it? They never went in the land of milk and honey. Moses, it's not like they went over there, oh, woo, land of milk and honey, it's great over here. And Moses said, no, get over back on the other side of Jordan. We're going to go punish you for 40 years in the wilderness. That is not what happened, but it's subtly implied in the way this is stated, is it not? Leadership is going to face, if you're doing what God would have you to do, it's going to face some opposition in the world. And here's the really uncomfortable element of this. You could face opposition, and it's within the kingdom of God. It's within the domain of God's covenant people. So we're a family here on earth, but we can be a kind of a little dysfunctional family to some degree. We don't always get along and play nice with one another. And so these types of contentions rise up among God's people. I mean, you can go back through the history of not just old Baptist churches, but pretty much any church, and you're going to find all kinds of contentions and strife and difficulties and splits and divisions And all these things take place. And, you know, I guess you could blame us. We've got an institution here and have decided that we're going to make it entirely composed of sinners. Now that's going to be a problem. Because if you've got nothing but sinners in your assembly, you're going to have some problems with sin in your assembly. And some of those sins are going to come up in the form of people inappropriately contesting the leadership who are trying to do what God says to do. And unjustly accusing them of things that they haven't done now look i always get nervous when i talk about this topic because as an elder i feel like it can be misunderstood and people can say well you're just above reproach no one can question anything you do i don't mean that at all but what these men are doing here is clearly opposed to what god would have them do and they are slandering moses in the effort to do so so it is true that elders can make mistakes and can do things wrong, and they may need to repent of things that they've done wrong as well. But in this example, what I'm trying to say is this. Even a church leader who's doing as he ought, who's doing what God would have him to do, can find opposition among God's people that rises up. And that's, a, that's kind of an unpleasant thing that comes to pass. Verse 15, And Moses was very wroth, and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering." I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. Now, Moses here is very upset over this issue. I think if you take verse 15, Moses being angry, and look at verse 4 where it says, When he heard it, he fell upon his face. I think this is a righteous indignation on Moses' part. I don't doubt that... Moses being a, a man of uh, like passions as us, there might have been an element of carnal anger in that as well. I don't know that I've ever had a pure moment of anger in my life where I could say I was just righteously indignant. There was none of my pride wrapped up in that. It was just, I was just on fire for God, and that's why I was angry. I don't trust my own uh, senses enough to think that that's possible. And I don't see any reason to think anything different of Moses as well. I was reading John Gill on this, and he makes a big deal out of Moses is angry because of how they've insulted God. Well, it seemed a little bit to me like the lady doth protest too much, methinks. right? There's a little bit too much of defending Moses here. I don't doubt that that was part or maybe the majority of his indignation, but I just point out the matter of anger as a, a tricky issue for each of us. Verse 17, Take every man his censer. And put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, 250 censers, thou also, and Aaron, each of you his censer. Here's the test we're going to do. We're going to ask God, and this is how we're going to do it. And they took every man his censer, and put fire in them, and laid incense thereupon, and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered together all the congregation against them, Unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. This is one of the more intense scenes of the Bible of judgment. You know, lots of people are familiar with the instance of Sodom and Gomorrah. And those people were exceedingly wicked in that city. And lots of people think about that. You know, fire and brimstone from heaven came down in God's judgment. But again, I'm going to point out that this is a judgment that took place within Israel. And we are told to consider this an example for ourselves that we should consider. How these people provoked God and how they were harshly judged for it separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? You think your sins can't spill over into consequences to other people? There is such a thing as collateral damage. You know what I mean? Collateral damage exists. If you're in a house with an abusive father or mother, and that occurs over the course of your life, you think, well, that was their sin. It really wasn't the child's fault, and they're not going to have any ill effects from this sort of thing. Maybe other people saw it as an example and said, well, I I guess that makes me feel better about abusing my own children, because that's how they treat their kids. You see, there's all kinds of collateral damage that results from sin, and we should think of sin not as... uh, Maybe not as much like drinking a poison, and more like playing with a hand grenade. When those consequences go off, it can affect a whole lot of people beyond just the person who's practicing that sin. And that's a, that's a dreadful thing. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went into Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. That's pointing it out right there. If you accept the idea that there's collateral damage from sin, then you accept the idea that it's probably not good to dwell in a place that's close to sin right? Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. That didn't end well for him, right? He got kind of sucked into the vortex of sin, right? He got close enough and got wrapped up in it. You might not be someone who uh, uses drugs, for example, right? But if you're hanging out with people who do, and they get pulled over for a traffic offense one day, and all of a sudden they got weed in their car, you may not even know it. Now all of a sudden you may be under suspicion of some sort of nefarious activity. There's collateral damage to sin and there's a reason for us to have a cautious approach to it and realize that I need to keep a safe distance from these things lest they have malevolent impact on my life. Now listen to this. This is very harsh. Verse 27, so they got up from the tabernacle of Korah and Dathan and Abiram on every side, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. That's a warning to fathers about their own leadership. There have been families that have been destroyed as a result of terrible leadership on the part of fathers. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own mind. This was not my plan. Now Moses knew this all along. I didn't just take this on because I wanted to be some great exalted leader. I didn't have these aspirations. You know the story of Moses. God found him on the backside of a wilderness out there, you know, in the middle of nowhere basically. And he didn't want to go once God told him to go. So you could imagine that this would be a frustrating matter to Moses. Moses but he's telling the truth here. This is not something that I invented. This is what God has told us to do. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. In other words, if something terrible in terms of judgment doesn't happen right now, you're going to know that I'm lying about this. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. I wonder how many of these provokers of the Lord in this moment started thinking, this is probably not the right thing to do. This is probably not going to go well for us. Now, some of them were probably so deceived that they thought, well, I guess we're going to just live on, and after today we'll be part of the 250 who are running the whole show here, right? But i got to think that uh, some or all of those people were God's people, and as a result, they had some measure of conscience in the matter. I have to believe that some of them were like, this was not the right thing to do. Nevertheless, Verse 31, and it came to pass as he had made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. Many would say, well, this is either a metaphor for God was displeased with them Or they'll say, well, it was just coincidental. There was some kind of an earthquake and I'm sure some of them died and now the Hebrew legend has made this out to be like it is in the Scriptures. But here's what I'm going to preach to you today. God did that and it happened exactly as it is found in the text. The same God that created the universe out of nothing could easily do something like this and there's no reason to assume otherwise. You see, there's an attack on Christianity today that comes from the realm of science, falsely so-called. And in that attack there is always a thing that is lurking but is never mentioned. And that is that God must be subservient to the laws of nature. But the reality is the Bible teaches God has dominion over the laws of nature. He can break them, change them, He can do as He wishes with them. He can make the earth open up and close back over people if He so chooses because that's who God is and there's no reason to try to explain this away. This happens all the time among God's people. I I try to encourage people to not be intimidated by the motions of science that try to launch out against Christianity. Those who use science to try to defeat the notion of God are bringing a knife to a gunfight. Science is a toolkit that is too small to address the supernatural. By its own definition, it only deals with natural things. So if there is a supernatural, it can't address it. And God has admitted that He's a supernatural spirit that is omnipotent. So there's no reason to think that science overturns the notion of God. Verse 34, And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. See, those people were in fear from what they saw. I'm sure they thought something along the lines of, Man, I've done some... Terrible things in my life. I'm not, it's not like I'm without sin. I've seen now a manifestation of God's attitude towards sin. How serious the matter is with Him. And it caused them to have great fear in that assembly. So we had read before, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Well, we've heard an example, an explicit retelling of this provocation, a provocation that took place in the wilderness. He's saying, don't be like those people. Don't harden your heart and resist what God would have you to do. Don't be like them. So, having heard that example now, let's look at verse 12. Take heed, brethren. This again, speaking to us. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, who's that addressed to? Brethren. These are God's people, regenerate people, and it's addressing them specifically. And look at what it's talking about. You can have in you an evil heart of unbelief. Now there's many in Christianity who say, well, that's just not possible. If you have an evil heart of unbelief, there's no way you could be one of God's children. Well, that clearly doesn't make any sense. Unless those people are saying, I don't ever sin. I never have any inclination to sin. I never have any heart or desire to do anything sinful. First of all, if you're saying that, let me just say this. I don't want to be uncharitable. You are straight crazy if you say that. That's insane. I'm telling you, even people who aren't Christians, who know how sin is defined, the lusts of the flesh, the sort of things that you want out of life, that Christianity defines as sinful, even unregenerate people will say, well, yeah, I got an urge to sin. Sure I do. Everybody does. That's why most of us don't want to be Christians. Because we want to go do all this other stuff. It is straight crazy if you have somebody telling you they don't sin and they don't have any urges to sin. That is insane. That's my editorial comment on the matter. But I believe the Bible abundantly attests to that. There can be in you an evil heart of unbelief. When's the last time you sinned? When's the last time you got short with somebody? When's the last time you said something you shouldn't have said? When's the last time you got into a road rage incident? Right? These things come out of the flesh so quick you don't even have to think about it. They are the produce of your natural mind, and you're going to be dogged by them for the rest of your life. So accept that and realize it. And knowing that this is your enemy, this is the enemy to your spiritual development, know that it's the case and say, okay, that's something i got to fight against. I can have an evil heart of unbelief. I need to know that, and I'm going to fight against it. Just as it's saying here, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You can depart from the living God. You could have departed from coming to church today. Right? It's easy to do. That's some act of departing from the living God, is it not? Any number of things that we've been derelict in our duties from, where we thought, well, God would probably have me to do this, but you know what, I'm just not going to do it. I'll do that next week. Okay. That's an act of departing from the living God, not doing as God would have you to do. Be aware of it and try to militate against it. Don't depart from the living God. Follow the Lord as a sheep following his shepherd, but exhort one another daily. Now look, we have a congregation here and we have an opportunity to encourage one another. The world's going to encourage you in the opposite direction. Come on, man. We're going to Lake on Sunday. Come on, there's that football game up here. We're going to go up there and, you know, you know, we're not going to get back in time and go to church now. I mean, come on. There's a thousand different distractions that could cause you to depart from the living God. You think, well, it's not that big a deal. It's just not that big a deal. Well, it's an evil heart of unbelief. Is that not a big deal? We make too little of sin, actually, in our, in our lives. We're in a society that's so... <laughs> enamored of sin, so accepting of sin that it becomes easy to become callous to the idea, but we need to think how this applies to us in departing from the living God. Well, now, you're, brother, you're just saying this stuff because you're trying to get people to go to church. You know, all you preachers benefit if you have people go to church. They pay you to preach, and so, you know, it's a, it's a money thing. That's what it is, right? I can see why preachers will try to encourage everybody to go to church. Verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast and to the end. While he said, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's like, this applies to your life in the here and now. If you hear what God has said, you ought to do it. Don't provoke God by not doing it. Do it. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he was grieved. 40 years, was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? He's saying the punishments that God doled out to them, you could find yourself in a similar sort of punishment as a result of an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. It's an encouragement to keep on going. Don't provoke God. This sermon is really about provocation. And one of the ways you provoke God is by not living in the way that He would have you to live. Hebrews chapter 10, however makes a statement about provoking that maybe we could take something good out of. That all seems very negative. Oh, you're talking about provoking God. It sounds, it's kind of upsetting. You know, you're talking about opposing God. It's, it's all very negative. Well, let's see if we can make provocation something positive from the book of Hebrews as well. Chapter 10, verse 22 is what I want. I'm going to close on this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now look, this is telling you what Christ has done on your behalf. This should be the inspiration for God's people to come and serve God in the assembly. And you need this on a weekly basis. You probably need it more than that. But at a minimum, you need that among God's people. You're not going to get affirmed in these great truths when you're out there in the world. It's going to affirm you and a whole lot of other stuff. You're much more likely to find out about the Super Bowl and Taylor Swift than you are about what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. That's just what's out there in the world. If you're just following the headlines. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. There's a provocation you can get involved with. You say, well, I hear you. I don't want to provoke God. I don't want to be disobedient in such a way that it brings down judgment and wrath into my temporal existence and causes collateral damage among the people around me. I don't want anything to do with provocation. Well, wait a minute. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is some provocation you can be involved with. And it's right here. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's what we need to be provoking in others. Try to encourage people, incite people to love one another and to good works towards one another. That's the kind of provocation that God's people should be involved with. And I made mention of this idea, well, you preachers are always talking about going to church. It's very self-serving. Well, we'll close on this, verse 25. It mentions love and good works. And then how does it qualify that? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. You see, when the book of Hebrews was written, he's like, it's already going on. We already got people skipping church to go to the Super Bowl. All right? That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. We already got people putting carnal things ahead of spiritual things. It's already going on, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We should be encouraging one another unto good works provoking one another. Let's not provoke God under wrath through our disobedience, but let's provoke one another to love and to good works. And one of the most important places to do that is in the assembly of God here in the Lord's New Testament Church. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street, in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.